close this morning. I want you to go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. We're going to read verses 16 and 17 and then we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 4 and we're going to read verse 1. And then we're going to jump over to James chapter 4 verse 7. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's go in the verse, chapter 4, verse 1. This is right after the baptism. This is right after the voice of heaven spoke over Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, then just a moment later, then, after all these things, then was Jesus led up. Listen to this. He was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. I want to go to James chapter 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How many understand, just as the song said a moment ago, a lot of times we get so caught up in the cartoon idea of heaven and hell or the cartoon idea of God and Satan that we think Satan is this little cheap puppy dog that just looks sad and pitiful and ignorant and lost but I want to tell you something Lucifer was in the presence of God Lucifer was so high in authority in the heavens he was the worship leader of the angels. He led them into the worship which would glorify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Though he lost his position in the kingdom of God, and though he lost his authority in the, in the throne room of God, he didn't lose his wittiness. He didn't lose his strength. He found out real quick he can't match the authority and the strength of God. But can I tell you something, church? You and I, we do not have what it takes to defeat a foe like Satan in our own power and in our own authority. You could be the baddest mama jama in the land. You could know all the jujitsu moves you know. You could lift the heaviest weight known to man. You could win every strongest man competition out there. And you are nothing but a little pebble in the eyes of Satan. That's why the Bible says... Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. I want to tell you, we are living in a day and an hour where the enemy is on the attack. He is on the attack from the eldest person you can think of to the youngest person just coming from the mother's womb, even still in the mother's womb. Because that's where ordination begins, is in the womb, amen. He said, I knew you before I formed thee in, the, in your mother's womb, and I ordained you a prophet to the nation. He knew you before you were ever born, and because God knew you, when you started to make your appearance, when you started to make your exit from the womb into the atmosphere that God was going to move in you the enemy set a plan to destroy you to devour you and to tear you down and the Bible even says be on the lookout for your adversary the devil who goes about like a roaring lying lion seeking whom he may devour do you know why a lion roars because there are animals that can escape with the speed that they have from the mouth of the lion there are animals that can climb, that can get away, that can fly, or that can jump to get away from the attack of the lion. But the roar of a lion, say, they say that it could be, be heard up to three miles away. 
is so intriguing, so loud, has so much authority in it that it paralyzes its prey. It forgets that it has the ability to the escape. It forgets that it has the ability to remove itself from danger. And it stands still in danger, not realizing that the thing roaring is coming to destroy it. That's why he roars like a lion to try to get you to be stunned, to try to get you to be fearful, to try to get you to worry, to try to get you to doubt. And you stand there not realizing that the Bible says in every temptation, God has made a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. We're fixing to pray, but I want to show you this. When he says that, he says God made a way of escape. He didn't say God made the way of escape. He said God made a way of escape. There's only one way to escape with your eternal life intact, and that is the way that God made. But there are other ways of escape, but they're going to cost you your eternity. You can give in to the power of the enemy. And the enemy has a way of carnally blessing you. He has a way of making you feel good and comfortable and giving you all the friends and all the fame and all the fortune of life. But what happens when you draw your last breath on this earth? Where does that fame and fortune go? I'm a big fan of Betty White. One of the greatest characters I I grew up watching her on the Golden Girls. But how many understand that her tombstone looks just like anybody else's? Might be maybe more expensive, but there's a date of birth and there's a date of death. And nothing she did on this earth, whether it was on the Golden Girls, whether it was on Lake Placid, whether it was on any other movie she played in, none of that went with her to eternity. The only thing is the decision to submit to God and resist the devil or to submit to the devil and resist God. There is no in-between. I want to tell you through the attacks that I've seen on our nation, to the attacks that I've seen on Christianity, to the attacks that I've seen on just having morality, good morals over the last few years, all the way down to some of the attacks I've seen in our own church, in our own communities. I believe we need to remember the authority we have in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to put the devil on the run. We need to make the devil flee from you. That don't mean he gets to walk with you and talk with you and hang out and you're just going to deal with him. No, it's time to put him on the run. It's time to kick him out. It's time to put him behind you. It's time to get him out of your vision, get him out of your mission, get him out of your job, get him out of your church, get him out of your children, get him wherever he's fighting you at, get him out. Amen. Will you stretch your hands this way and I pray for you and you pray for me. Most gracious and wonderful, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in your presence this morning. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for the mercy and the grace, God, that is renewed for us every morning, God. Lord, that brings us back to to remembrance, Lord, that brings us back to the knowledge, knowing, Lord, that though we may fall, Lord, though we may stumble, Lord, though we are cast down, we are not destroyed. It is not the end, but God, You hold the end, and you knew the end from the beginning, God. And we thank you that we are in your palm, and in the palm of your hand, no man can pluck us away. In the name of Jesus, we praise you for what you've done. We praise you for what you are doing. We praise you for what you are about to do in this house. In the mighty, precious name of Jesus, we pray. And the church says, amen. As you're being seated, look at somebody and say, it's time to put the devil out. Amen. We got some plans this evening, so I'm only going to keep you till around three um, preaching, and then I'll let you. I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyhow, I do just have just a few things this morning I want to share with you uh, before we go our separate ways. And putting the devil out is real easy to say. 
It is real easy to even have a false understanding that because I go to church, because I read the Bible, and because I don't actively just live in sin, that automatically I am, uh, I am just free from the attacks of the enemy. But can I tell you, that couldn't be any more far from the truth. As we look in the book of Matthew chapter 3, we have, I want to put this in the context for you, we have the Son of God, He is the seed of David, the root of David, he is born of the Virgin Mary, just like prophecy said he would be born from the Virgin womb. He was born from the Virgin Mary. He is the son of Joseph because of him being married to Mary. And now we are seeing Jesus as a grown man. Now before this moment, Jesus had been found in the temple years ago teaching the scribes and the Pharisees, and blowing their minds with the knowledge that a 12-year-old boy would have. He was in the temple teaching, and it was so busy in the town that his mama and his daddy were so involved in what was going on, they done journeyed, started heading back home, and got a good ways journey out and realized, where is our child? None of y'all have ever did that. But Mary and Joseph did. That's why when I lose my kids, I think, well, good, you're more like Jesus. Amen? We've been in grocery stores, can't find our kids. We've been at ballparks and couldn't find our kids. And, you know, when you have as many kids as we have, you're lucky to find all of them in the house. So we, you know, they're they looking for their child. They can't find their son. They journey back, and they walk up, and they find Jesus and Mary's getting on to him like a mama saying, little boy, do you know what you have done to me and your daddy? We couldn't find you. Know, where have you been? And Jesus is stunned like, surely you would have known that you would have found me in my father's house. And Jesus had been in there teaching, but even though he was teaching and he was giving a glimpse of the knowledge of the kingdom, he had not yet started his purpose in ministry. He was doing what any teacher should do, teaching the truth. He was doing what any preacher should do, preaching the truth. But he had not yet began the three-and-a-half-year journey that was going to land him on the cross of Calvary, which we celebrated his resurrection just one week ago. He had not yet started that journey. He was still going home with mama and daddy. He was still eating with his family. He was still enjoying his time as a child. But then one day, there's this man that is out there in the wilderness by the name of John the Baptist. John was considered a lunatic. A lot of times when we talk about John, we don't, or at least I never really pictured him like I believe he truly was. But I believe, I mean, just imagine in the year 2022, you're riding on your way to work and you got your windows down, it's a pretty spring morning, and you pull up to a red light just on the outskirts of town, and there's a block of woods on your left, and here's this man screaming, repent for the kingdom of hand, but for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for I am preparing the way of the Lord. He comes running out by your car, and he's got nothing on but some camel skin. and He's got honey all in his beard and locust wings in his teeth and, 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 and everything where he's been eating bugs out there in the woods. Do you really think that you're going to listen to that man say, you're sent by God? No, you're probably going to be like, you got to stop eating your laundry detergent. See, we can use that joke nowadays because that's kind of what the, the, the younger generation understands that, you see. It's like the joke I've seen a while back. I think I shared it here with my dad shared. He said, we, we talk about how dumb the old generation is. The younger generation talks about how dumb we were back in the old days. But used to, you would get a manual in your car and it would tell you how to, how to change the, 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 the vials or the radiator or do change the oil. And now when you get a manual in your car, it tells you don't drink the battery acid. You know, so, I mean, it's kind of hard to weigh up against that. But anyhow, Jesus is somewhere out here, and there's this John the Baptist. The highfalutin Pharisees consider this man to be a lunatic. 
But he, he didn't bother them because he didn't stay in town. He lived in the wilderness. He lived out in the boondocks. He was way out there in the sticks. The Bible says his, his diet was locusts and honey. And, and he wore camel skin. And, and, and these things. And, and even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those other people that didn't agree with John the Baptist, but they didn't worry about John the Baptist, there were also some other people that could see the signs of the time and knew that the Messiah was at hand. And they were looking and they began to follow John the Baptist. And you'll go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, you'll realize that there were disciples of John. They got converted to disciples of Christ with the baptism of the Holy Ghost right there in Acts chapter 19. But anyhow, this, this John the Baptist is down there and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he starts telling these people, he said, oh, you think that I'm somebody, you think that I'm great, I'm nobody, I'm nothing Lord, I'm nothing without him. I'm nothing without God. I am just a forerunner. I am just someone that comes and lays out the carpet for the entrance of the, of the king. I'm just someone that comes out here and, and, and knocks the bushes down so that someone, so the king has a clean path to walk on. I am somebody that prepares the way of the Lord. He said, but there is coming a man after me whose shoes that I am not worthy to latch. Now, John the Baptist has never seen Jesus face to face. He's only met Jesus one time in the same room. And that was when Elizabeth had John the Baptist six months pregnant and was, he was in her womb. Many scholars say that she may have been having difficulties because he had not been moving properly. But Mary finds out that she is going to conceive the Son of God by the Holy Ghost and she runs all the way to her cousin's house, which makes Jesus and John cousins. That's how that works. And she runs all the way to Elizabeth's house, and she knocks on the door. They didn't go in and have tea and crumpets and, and, and watch a movie and then slowly kind of get in his thing. No, the Bible says that when she knocked on the door and, and Elizabeth opened that door at the salutation of Mary, the, that, 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 in other words, at the greeting, as the, hey, how are you doing? Or what are you doing here? Or why are you at my house? Or did you bring my milk back? Whatever people knock on your door for. At that salutation, when she opened the door and it was a, hey, how are you? Or whatever it was, the Bible says the, the, the baby leaped in the womb of Elizabeth. And we always go to Acts chapter 2 and we talk about that's when the Holy Ghost fell when people were baptized in the Holy Ghost. But I believe that before Acts chapter 2 ever happened, my Bible and your Bible tells you that when Elizabeth felt that baby leap in her womb, she was filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. She was filled. Why? Not because of who John was, but because of who just come in contact with John. And that was Jesus Christ. These two were working together. Little did the mamas know they were just talking about the issues of the time but these babies in the womb had a plan and the Bible says the baby leaped in her womb now you can believe how you want to believe you can let science teach you what science wants to teach you you can let science tell you that a baby in the womb is not a life but my Bible tells me that the John the Baptist leaped in the womb of the mother and she was filled with the Holy Ghost and not only did that take place under the anointing of the Holy Ghost Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, Mary, oh, you are blessed and highly favored among women. A prophetess had arose because of an introduction of wombs and anointings. And it created a prophetess out of Elizabeth who said, Mary, you are, you are blessed and highly favored among women. Before the story was even unfolded, Elizabeth already knew, I can sense something in you that you may not even sense yourself. The enemy knows how to sense the same ways. He knows how to tell when there's something changing in your life. When you've been going through the same circles, he'll give you that three months that you go out and you quit all that you've been doing and you walk around and you tiptoe and you, you got all these beautiful flowers around you. He's okay giving you those three months. As long as he knows that it's getting about time, he should be falling any minute now. It's getting about that time she's going to fall flat on her face. 
She's going to give up. She's going to quit. She's going to turn her back on God. He's going to get in. He's going to throw in. He's going to leave his wife and kids again. She's going to walk out on. He's going to quit his job. He's going to walk away from ministry. He's going to leave the church. He won't even bother you in those three months when you're out there serving in the community and you handing out place and you giving out invitations to church because he has this feeling that he's got you so convinced or so figured out that when that time comes around, you're going to fall again. He just says, I already know the card to use. He's going to fall again. Before I get too much into that, let me get back to the context of the story. So they met. I, I love the way T.D. Jakes put this years ago. I heard him preach it. He said, other than that time being in the same room in the womb, they had never met again face to face. But John the Baptist knew there is coming one after me. The Bible says he's down in the Jordan River one day and he's baptizing people. And here comes this man walking down the hill. And John the Baptist didn't need an introduction. John the Baptist didn't need a band playing. John the Baptist didn't need a pastor present. He needed the Holy Spirit to tell him. He said, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of this world. The only other time that John the Baptist met him was in the fluids of the womb. And now John the Baptist is meeting him in the fluids of the Jordan River. And the Holy Spirit was evident and present in both places at the same time, always from the end, from the beginning to the end. And here John the Baptist is looking at his cousin Jesus, and Jesus says, I need to be baptized. Now, John has been spending his, his ministry his last few weeks telling folks, look, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. The, the, the one that's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to get down and latch his shoes. But now the Son of God stands before John and says, I want you to baptize me. And John begins to argue, says, no, no, you are the Son of God. I, who am I to baptize you? You need to baptize all of us. My baptism was nothing. My baptism, baptism was just of water. But you've come to baptize us with truth and with fire, with the Holy Ghost. You've come to baptize with more than just a little dirty water from the Jordan River. And Jesus says, baptize me. And I used to ask myself this question all the time. You know, we get saved and then we get baptized. And it is a sign that we are to be buried. Our old man is to be buried and we are being resurrected in Christ. And like Paul said, the life that we now live is not our own. We are bought with a price. We live by faith in the Son of God. But Jesus is that sacrifice. He is actually going to die and be buried. And then he is physically going to be resurrected three days later. But yet he says, I must be baptized. And I used to struggle with this. And, and I'm not going to tell you this is the most theologically in-depth answer you can get. But I am, I am confirmed and I am sure that Christ was establishing at the very beginning of his ministry. Don't teach and don't preach what you aren't willing to live. Don't teach and don't preach what you are. Don't, don't tell people to serve and you're not a servant. Don't tell people to worship but you won't worship. Don't tell people they need to pray and you're not a prayer warrior. Don't tell people they need to walk righteously and you're not walking righteously. Don't tell people that they have to love the Lord God with all the heart, mind, body, and soul. And you only love them when you're free. He says, people are going to need to be baptized in me. So I'm going to be baptized and John baptizes him, and the Bible says when he come up, says the heavens opened up. You want to know if there's a, a, a triune God, a, a Godhead three in one? You got Genesis who said let us, plural, make man. Do we have three gods? Absolutely not. And people that despise what we believe always say that we always believe we got three gods. That has never been the case. Never has it ever been taught in any seminary I've ever been to. It was never taught in my credentialing process. It's not taught through the Church of God. It's not taught in any Pentecostal movement I've ever been associated with that we have three gods. Never. But that is what we are accused of. And you know what? Sometimes you just got to tip your hat and say, okay, buddy, whatever you say. You know, never one time have we declared or preached that we have three gods. But we have a Godhead 
three in one. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When the, in, in the book of Genesis, the Bible says God looked and he saw the, the world was void and without form. And then he spoke. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And in verse 14 of John, he's, uh, chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh. So we know that Jesus is the Word. So you've got God the Father who saw God, God the Son who spoke, it was the Word, and then it says the Spirit moved upon the waters, amen, and there was light. There was light given when he spoke. And then a little while later, you hear, he said, let us make man in our image. We are mind, body, and soul. Three part, we are a three-part being. When I say I have a triune God, I'm not three people, but I have a three-part being. I have a physical body, I have a mental state, and then I have a soul. And, and all three are in one. And then he said, let us make man our image. And now you're out right here at the Jordan River at the baptism. The Bible says the heavens were opened up. And the spirit like a dove descended and lit upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's here in the flesh. The spirit is coming to him. And a voice from up there speaks. All three parts in one picture. The Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. He said, this is my beloved Son and who I am well pleased. That is your teaching for the day. Now I'm fixing to give you the message. You ready for the message on putting the devil out? Jesus gets baptized. He gets anointed. He gets, he gets the, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And he walks up out of the water. Surely he is about to charge hell with a water pistol. He is about to go save the whole community. He's about to start seven 501c3s. He's about to go to nine churches and serve in ten. He's about to do everything. He is going to be on the, on, the, on the forefront of every church sign and every ministry. He, I mean, he is just about to do it because he just had a spirit in the Jordan River. That ain't what it says. The Bible says when he left his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. I want to tell you something I've learned by experience. I've learned in study. And you can pretty much ask any truthful minister that's ever served the Lord and served in ministry under the sun, and they are going to tell you, ministry is not as fashionable and as pleasable as it looks on the outside. I remember when I was a little boy and I didn't understand spirituality, I used to think, man, pastoring is where it's at. You get to fish all week and live in the church's house, and then all you got to do is preach on Sunday. I mean, that, who wouldn't want to be a pastor? Who wouldn't want to just wait for a church to call them and they just travel around and live in motels and preach revivals and, and get fed by the churches and just always getting blessed? But very few people ever look at the fashionable life. Just to let you know, I don't fish all week. I'm bivocational. I have a full-time job. But anyhow, the idea that that's all there is to it is a tactic of the enemy. He wants as many weak-minded Christians taking pulpits as he can possibly get. Matter of fact, the enemy will help you get your credentials to be a pastor if that's the only thing you think ministry is about. The, 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 the enemy will help you get your foot in the door with the right people that will put you on the stage, that will give you a class to teach in or to do this or to do that because he knows you don't have the vision of the kingdom of God. You've got an idea of what joyful and carnal your life could be like if you would just have that position or that place. But something I learned a long, long time ago, I have never been set forth in ministry without the enemy coming to try to set me back. Amen. I have never moved from one position to another. When I went from being just a nobody to being saved, hell came to fight me and my family. Amen. And then, then when I stepped into youth ministry, I felt like I got every Judas child that I have ever known at one time, and nine of them was my family members. And they was like, you're going to be a youth pastor. Here's your little spawns of Satan. Go teach them about Jesus. But I will tell you, the greatest year of my life was working with those youth. Because God taught us, my wife and I, so much on being servants, 
realizing that it ain't all about what you do when the lights are on and the microphone's in your hand, but it's more about what you do at 2 o'clock in the morning or at 3 o'clock over here or what are you doing when this one has a dodge pump, when this one breaks his arm at the ball game, what are you doing when this one is out here and they're doing a, a one-time performance and they see you see their face light up when here comes the youth pastors walking in the door to watch them. That's the kind of things that God taught me along the way. But then God called us to be evangelists. And we were starting that, and I was preaching my, I believe it was our very, my very first revival. And my little boy falls and hits his eye on the first night of revival, right there on the base of the wooden altar. And it swolled up real big. He screamed to the top of his lungs. And he got real sick over the next couple of days, and we thought it was because he hit his eye. And my wife finally ends up taking him to the hospital. And I'm driving two and a half hours back home because I have to work the next morning. And I get all the way to our exit on 16 from Columbus. And I'm turning down about 12 in the morning, trying to get home. And my wife calls me crying, saying they're fixing to take him in for emergency brain surgery. And I had to turn around and go all the way back to Columbus. And my little boy went into emergency brain surgery that night. Then a few days later, they had to go in and perform, finish the task and do a full all-out brain surgery to place a shunt in his head. One year later, the same symptoms begin appearing. Rush him to the emergency room. Same thing. They rush him to Columbus from Albany. They rush him all the way to Columbus for another brain surgery. And they do another brain surgery. Five brain surgeries that my little boy had to go through. And here I am standing here as a brand new preacher, a brand new pastor. And I'm asking God, Lord, I have done everything you've asked me to do. Lord, I've sacrificed my career. I've sacrificed everything. And here I am with my hands empty. And my little boy is fighting for his life. He's got a rare case of hydrocephalus. He's got a cyst in the middle of his brain, Lord. Can you, for, can you just bless me one time, Lord? I'm tired of fighting. And I remember the Lord just reminding me to keep the faith and to hold on and to keep praying. And my wife and I was praying. We had family members praying. My, our church was gathering together and praying. And here we are. Nine years later. And he's blessed. He loves to show his parents how much he loves us. He loves, he won't go to bed. He'll walk three miles to make sure he hugs and kisses us goodnight. He will not go to bed without doing that. But every time that we went through a trial, I didn't even tell you this. I've told the church this story many times, but the same little boy when he was born got trapped in the birth canal and died for eight minutes with no oxygen to his brain. And I remember them rushing him to the NICU. And they, they walked us around, and I went around to the front of the NICU because I couldn't go back there. And, and uh, my dad and my, my pastor and all of them had come to come pray with me, and, and we were going to pray. And all I could do when I fell down, I wanted to just rebuke the devil. I wanted to fight. I wanted to, just, I wanted to hurt him so bad. I wanted to use anything. I wanted to, him to remi be reminded of being cast out of heaven over and over and over. And I just wanted to pray this super awesome in-depth prayer. But when I fell to my knees, the only words I could muster up to say was, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I know you got it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I didn't even talk to the devil. I was just submitting myself to God. And because I was submitting myself to God and I wasn't giving any room to the devil, I felt peace and I felt joy come over my life. Amen. And in two hours my little boy was breathing my little boy was alive my little boy was kicking and screaming amen and he lived why not because of who I was but because of who God was and is sometimes you're going to be put through a fire or a test before you are going to advance to your next step in ministry and every time we fail, God doesn't just mark an F on your paper and say, nope, kick you out of school. See, your, God, your father loves you so much that every time you fail, he picks you up. Just like a little, just like a, a, a daddy out there on the baseball field with his, with his little boy who strikes out. He grabs him and he don't say, that's it, you'll never play ball again. No, he grabs him and he says, son, you know you can hit that. 
So when you come back up here again, I want you to watch that ball, and I want you to swing that bat, and I want you to hit that ball as hard as you can. God's picking you up every time you fail. And he's saying, son, I know you got what it takes to get through this. I know you got what it takes to get through this. But if I do it for you, you're not going to know the authority you have. So I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it through you. Oh, Moses, hold your hands up, and I'm going to do it through you. Joshua, just have faith and do not be discouraged, and I'm going to do it through you. Caleb, just, just keep looking and see what I see, and I'm going to do it through you. Amen. Peter, I'm going to do it through you. Paul, when you're heading to the chopping block, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to do it through you. Amen. Jesus Christ, I'm not going to do it for you. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And God said, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to do it through you. And through Jesus Christ is the remission of our sins. And today, whatever you let him do through you, it's going to take a temptation, it's going to take a test, and it's going to take a trial. But when you come out the other side, you're going to come out stronger and more powerful than when you went in. Amen. Somebody give God praise. But he went up to be tempted of the devil. And the devil tempts him. Which gets me to my next point. The question, I can tell you all day long. We can walk out of here saying, oh, I'm going to put the devil on the run. Oh, I'm walking out of here with my Bible and I'm going to put the devil on the run. I'm going to go home and I'm going to take all the bacon grease off the stove and I'm going to rub it on every door and TV and toilet in my house. And we are going to put the devil on the run. The question is, how do you put the devil on the run? Well, that's easy, brother Josh. You just read the scriptures. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Well, let me take it a little deeper for you. How do you resist the devil? Do you just do this right here? No. Stop. It'll work for a little while. But the longer you let him stay, the deeper he gets his grips. The more he figures out about you. The more he knows what bothers you. The more he knows what disturbs you, the more he knows what weakens you. And he don't just come in with an all-out splash. He just starts chiseling away on that last nerve. He just starts chiseling away. He starts taking your joy from you. He starts taking your peace from you. And then all of a sudden, you start thinking, I got to get my peace and my joy back. But instead of submitting to God, you try to figure it out yourself. You feel guilty because you let it go. Now you start trying to fix it for yourself. And I don't know about you, but I have tried a lot of the world's solutions, and none of them's worked. Submit yourself to God. How do I submit myself to God? You've got to understand that before you can under, even understand resisting the devil. One of the biggest words that kept ringing in my ear, when you submit yourself to God, is it's going to take a commitment. That is a gigantic word that is, frightens the hearts of people today. Commitment. Divorce rates are higher than it's ever been in the church. Commitment. The, they used to tell me when I was a little boy, your word is your bond. Your word is your bond. If I can't take your word for it, then it's no good to me. Nothing you ever say is good to me. Your word is your bond. But how many times do we commit to something, whether it's a church event or a ministry or a job or a relationship or a sports or a business or thing? As soon as we commit, man, we'll do anything and everything. What do I got to do? How, you tell me what to do. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. That's not being committed. That's being excited. Commitment comes when that wears off. Are you still committed? See, there's a difference between commitment and a contract. A contract binds people for a time to fulfill a certain duty. And as long as the contract isn't breached, it can be done any way that the bounds of that contract allows it to be. But a commitment says, come hell or high water, I am here till the job is complete. And if ain't nobody ever told you, I want to tell you this morning, your job on this earth isn't complete until you draw your last breath on this earth. As long as there is breath in your body, God's got a purpose for you. He wants to use you. He is going to work in you and through you and for you. 
submitting yourself to God, it takes commitment. To commit to something means to give everything and to no matter what happens, don't quit on it. I remember, I don't personally remember real much because I grew up in church. Very rarely did we do our family vacations through Sunday because we wanted to be back for church. But I can remember when I got a little older and I wasn't excited about church. I wanted to see what the world offered. All of my trip, I am not going to leave my job. They pay my bills. Church don't pay my bills. So I'm going to stay at work. And when we go on trips, we're going to use Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I used to have that mentality. So I would be at church three or four weeks, and, and, and the pastor would get used to seeing us, and he would start asking us to do more. And the moment I'd say, yeah, I was excited. I wasn't committing. I was excited. I said, yeah. And then the pastor needs me, and guess what? Ah, I forgot to tell you, I ain't going to be there today. Um, we are down here at Bike Week. We are walking on the strip right now. We are eating oysters. I'm mm, sorry. It wasn't so much that I failed God, but I failed a man who had been given a vision by God that saw me as a tool for the ministry so that the kingdom could be advanced. And when he reached in his toolbox, the tool wasn't there. When he reached in his toolbox, it was missing. It was absent. And we're living in a day, and the Bible told us, and he warned us. He said in the last days, men were going to fall away because of fear. Why are they fearful? Because they haven't put the devil out. They've got a fear in their hearts because of COVID. they got a fear because of 9-11. they got a fear in their hearts because of, of what the world's going to do. they got a fear of preaching on certain things because of the movements that are out there that might attack their image of their church. But I'm here to tell you today, if Jesus was beaten, battered, his image was attacked, his image was changed. The Bible says you couldn't even recognize him as a man. He had a crown of thorns instead of a crown of righteousness. He, had, he was stripped of his garments instead of wearing a robe of righteousness. He wore a cross on his back instead of holding his hands out to hug his friends and neighbors. He was cursed upon a tree, but yet he was without sin. And if he had to be Attacked because and his image had to be attacked. Guess what? There are going to come times where our image is going to be attacked. There are times that I've had to tell people, I can't do this, I can't be there because I have a commitment back home. I got a commitment at church, I got a commitment on my job, I got a commitment here and a commitment there. And I'm not the kind of person that wants to walk out on my commitments. Am I always good at keeping them? No, but I want to try. Something that the military instilled in me was integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is doing the right thing when nobody is looking. Not just doing it because the room is full, but what, what are you doing when you're walking through the sanctuary and there's nobody in the pews? What are you doing when the prayer time comes around and nobody's watching? Are you still praying? Are you still reading scriptures? Are you still talking to God? Are you still uplifting the name of Jesus? That's how you submit to God. So when you submit to God, you commit to God, you put, in your, you put in the work. When you give yourself to God, you're saying, Lord, I'm with you because you're with me. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee. If you want to put the devil out, you've got to learn to resist him. And Jesus gave us the perfect example of how to resist the devil. First off, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he had gotten hungry and he had gotten thirsty, here comes the little devil. Remember, a commitment when it's easy isn't a commitment. It's excitement. When Jesus started that fast, the Bible don't say that when Jesus started his fast, the devil come up and said, here, I got some bread. You want to bake this rock of bread? No, it says when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. When he had fasted, in other words, the enemy stood back and said, hold on, let's let him get weak. Hold on, hold on, hold back, let's let him get weak. Let him get weak. 
But what the enemy was doing was looking at his flesh. And the enemy saw that his flesh was getting weak. But what happens in a fast, the enemy can't see. When he saw his flesh getting weak, his spirit man was getting strong. His word was growing and developing and becoming stronger and more mighty. So then when the enemy saw him get weak, here he come to him. He says, you have the authority to make this rock a loaf of bread. What did Jesus say? Did Jesus say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, splash him with holy water. No, he says, <clears throat> devil, the word of God says, man shall not live by bread alone. Sounds pretty weak, don't it? In our ears. But you know what happens when you tell the devil to go? The Bible says you tell him to go and he goes about and he walks through dry desert places and he comes back and he comes back with seven spirits stronger than itself. See, the enemy didn't just want to tell him to go <coughs> and leave him healthy. The enemy, or, or God, the Lord didn't want to tell the enemy to go. So the Lord wanted to damage him. How do you damage the enemy? With the sword of the spirit. He took the word of God and the enemy... Realize this, the enemy never one time lied to Jesus. Do you realize that the enemy doesn't always lie to destroy what you have or to destroy your image? Sometimes the enemy just takes the truth and twists it. He just twists the truth. Because Jesus did have the authority to turn that stone into a loaf of bread. Then he takes him over here he says... If you really want people to trust you, throw yourself down and save yourself. Then he goes on, he says, look at all these kingdoms. And every time, he says, if you want it, all you got to do is bow to me and I'll give you everything your eye can see. Remember, the enemy knows how to give your carnal blessings. He even told Jesus, Jesus owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Jesus was looking out here what the enemy saw as a kingdom of great riches, and he's like, that's my footstool. But he, he, he knows how to give you worldly things and worldly success. I, I don't like to call people's name from the pulpits, but there's a certain singer who was raised in a Pentecostal church home who is now a big-time singer in the world. And through her own testimony, says that she welcomed in spirits to help her perform. Not godly spirits, not holy spirits. Multiple singers have said that, but this one in particular was raised in a Pentecostal home. Which tells me that it's somewhere this person had the option, struggle through this life and gain eternal life or get everything you've ever wanted. Never want for nothing again as long as you're breathing on this earth. And they chose this earth. They chose this life over eternal life. But I'm here to tell you, I'll lose everything I got to gain eternal life. There's nothing on this earth that can suffice to what God has in store for those who love him or are the call according to his purpose. As the musicians come, resisting the devil is not so much about denying what he wants. The enemy is smart enough to know that a believer is going to always deny what he wants right off the bat. He just probes and he pokes and he, he just probes at you and he just sticks at you and he just works on you until he, he tries to weaken you and he tries to disturb you and he tries to cause anxiety and then he tries to cause depression. And as long as you let him live, as long as you let him breathe, as long as you let him have life around you, as long as you have not completely resisted him, you've only resisted his wants, then you're going to find yourself struggling.
down the road. I've been there. So if, if, if you feel like I'm talking to you and you feel like somebody's done told me about your life or what you're going through right now, let me tell you something. I have been here. That's why I know this. I know this because I have, I have been a, a pastor. I have been preaching and teaching in the pulpits, leaving the pulpits in depression, leaving the altar calls, praying for folks, watching them get slain in the Holy Spirit and walk out the door totally depressed, totally unknowing who I am in the Lord any longer, forgetting who my, my authority through the Holy Spirit and just ready to give up everything and throw in the towel. That's why I know this because I let the enemy hang on too long until he just found a way to make me totally and utterly depressed. He resisted the devil by using the word of God against him. You can't be afraid of the enemy. You've got to be willing to have a biblical conversation with him. Matthew 26, verse 40, 41 says, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. See, when, you, when the enemy first starts, the spirit indeed is willing. You're willing to fight. You're willing to stand. But the flesh is weak. So when the enemy comes in and he gives you the remembrance that you have the authority to make the stone into bread, what is your purpose for fasting? Jesus knew well enough that the Spirit led me into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So anything he tries to let me know I can do, i got to remember, he is twisting what I'm meant to do. He is taking my purpose and trying to destroy me with my own purpose. And the, and, and the Lord knew better than to let that happen. Then Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, if, as you stand all over the house this morning. Did the rapture take place? I could have swore I heard them. Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What is the armor of God? It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's the helmet of salvation. It's the belt of truth. It's the shoes of peace. It's the sword of the Spirit. When you wake up every morning, let the enemy, make sure the enemy knows that he's got a fear you woke up again. Putting on the armor, just you don't come to church on Sunday morning and get a good feeling and then leave here thinking you're, you're armored up and ready. Putting on the armor of God is a daily activity. It is a daily activity. When I was deployed to Afghanistan, and we would go into our Connaught briefings the night before, before we would leave out on a mission, we would get all the intel of what was happening, what was going on. And every morning we woke up, we done PCCs and PCIs, pre-combat inspections, pre-combat checks to make sure that not only were we protected and armored up, but all of our men were armored right. If we had a gunner, we knew what he was supposed to look like, and we would check him over and make sure he had everything that was needed to be what he was supposed to be. Every day you wake up, you are stepping, when you step out of your bed, you are stepping into the mission field. And if you want to resist the devil, every day you wake up, the moment you wake up or within the first few moments of you waking up, you need to get on your knees and you need to say, Lord, I cannot do this without you, Lord. I am nothing in my own street, but God, I know that you have given me the weapons of my warfare and they're not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, Lord. I know that my enemy is not flesh and it's not blood, God, so I'm not against so-and-so and I'm not against Mrs. So-and-so and I'm not against Mr. So and so but God I'm against the principalities and the spiritual wickedness and the darkness in high places God Lord I am coming against them in the name of Jesus I plead your strength over my life God to withstand the wiles of the devil and I declare God that I will be victorious not because of who I am God but because of the spirit that lives on the inside of me start your day inviting the Lord to protect you Put this word in your belly. David said, let me hide your word in me that I might not sin against you. 
He said, your word have I hid in my heart. This word doesn't just appear. It has to be put there. It has to be put there by you. You have to allow that. But I am here to tell you today, once you've done the armor, once you've been resisting the devil, and you still feel like you're in the fight of your life, this is the good news. This is why we come to church. Because when you've come in as a fighter, and I come in as a fighter, and my neighbor comes in as a fighter, and we come in and we've been warring together. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. He said, if you're sick, if any man is sick, let him call upon the elders of the church and let them pray. They would lay hands on one another and they would be filled with the anointing and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul told Timothy, he said, stir up the gift that was given to thee by the laying on of the hands. The enemy is trying his hardest to get you so distracted that you never experience the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Because he knows that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And if he can keep God out of your life, whether it be through an all-out attack, or whether he can put you in an atmosphere where you just feel like it's not about the Holy Spirit. As long as you're happy, as long as you're having a good time in life, I have a great time. Even all the trials that I've been through, I have a great time in life. Not because I got a boat, not because I got a camper, not because I hunt and fish, not because I, I, I have a, my family. I have a great time in life because I know that this life is but a vapor. But when I take, make that transition into my eternal life, whether I, whether I pass on from this earth or whether the Lord comes and receives me with the rest of the church, that I will be receiving an eternal weight of glory, which shall be revealed on that day. Paul said, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, and all that love his appearing. But while you walk through this trial, or you may be in the wilderness of temptation today, you might be passing through the fiery furnace, you might be in that place where the enemy's coming after your family. He's coming after your children. He's coming after your job. He's coming after your finances. He's whatever, you're, whatever he's coming after you with, and he's got you on the end, and you're ready to, you've been holding on to everything you got. Can I remind you, when Paul was on the boat, and the boat was torn apart with the waves, Paul didn't give up. He didn't look and say, God, where's my ship? No, he looked around, he saw a broken piece, and he held on. He just held on to that piece until the storm was over. And he got up on this island where God manifested and used him mightily on the island of Malta. So maybe the situation you're in, God's not waiting for you to see the big picture. Maybe he's just looking for you to hold a broken piece. Hold on to a broken dream. Hold on to a broken promise. Hold on to a broken word. Because God is not a man that he should lie. Amen. He is not one that he should repent. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And besides him, there is no other. So whatever you're going through today, I stopped by to tell you this morning, God's in your life for, for him to take your life and have your life. But it's up to you today to make the decision. Devil, you got to go. You have got to go. You have got to get out of here. You are not going to have my children. You are not going to have my family. You are not taking my ministry. You are not taking my peace and my joy. One of the most powerful movies I've ever watched when it comes to prayer is War Room. And I'm reminded of the scene. I wish I would have thought about it. I would have had it played for you. But I'm reminded of the scene when this woman is trying to talk to her husband and he basically treats her like a little child. And she goes out on that porch. She's just telling the devil, nobody's there. 
The husband has no idea that this woman is warring in the spirit for their relationship. Has no idea that this woman is fighting and warring and refusing to let the devil have her marriage. And she is out there and she is, she is just calling him for what he is. She is calling and declaring liberty and freedom from this oppression and depression and this trial and circumstance. But not only was she doing it, she had sought some spiritual guidance from an older lady. And this older lady is praying the house down. And she, she is just telling the devil, you lost another one. You're losing another one. They're holding on. They're not letting go. You're going to lose your grip, devil. They're coming out of this. They're coming out. Somebody this morning, you need to call your son's name. You need to call your daughter's name. And you don't take what the devil looks like is happening to them. You go ahead and let them know. They're coming out of this thing, Satan. They're coming out. You're losing your grip. I know the king that suffered for my sake. I know the king who died for my sake. And I know the king that rose for my sakes and he is going to raise up sons and daughters with every head bowed every eye closed are you here this morning and you just need to put the devil out of your, your thoughts your mind is he agonizing your spirit, your mind spiritually and mentally and emotionally to the point that you are living in utter distress and disappointment? Are you here this morning and the enemy's been trying to wreak havoc on your family? He is trying to take the prodigal sons and daughters as far as he could possibly get them. Are you here this morning and the, and, and the enemy is coming in like a flood? He's coming after your your marriage. He's coming after your job. He's coming after your ministry. But you said this morning, he's not going to take it. He's not going to have it because I am resisting him today. Because I am submitting myself to the Lord. I am giving him all that I am and all that I will be and all that I ever will be. And whatever is mine is his. Amen. Whatever is mine is his. And I trust him with it. I trust him with it this morning. And I'm giving it to him. And I know that he is going to move on my behalf. And as I'm glorifying God, the enemy is getting further and further away. I want you to look at me one more time. I told you earlier that sometimes before you can move up in ministry, you got to go through those temptation seasons. Jesus was baptized in the river. He was tempted. If you read a little later in verse or chapter 4, you're going to read where Jesus, on that last temptation, he said, get thee out, Satan. Get thee out. And he quoted scripture. And the Bible says, the enemy departed for a season. Then the very next verse, after he had resisted the devil, after he had been through that trial, the very next verse in chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry that would lead to our salvation. Aren't you glad that he knew how to resist the devil? Aren't you glad the entire souls of all of mankind weighed in the balance of whether he could resist the devil and make him flee? And he did it. What happens if you and I resist the devil? What happens if we don't? let him stay any longer than he has to. There's one thing I've understood. You don't make the devil leave. You just bring more of God in and it pushes him out. I'm not saying you can't rebuke the devil. I'm not saying you, I'm not saying, but I, he, he's always coming back. He's going to find another approach. He's going to keep coming back. But I don't care how many approaches he finds, if I just keep making my room bigger and tighter with God's presence, that's less room for the enemy to get in. So I'm going to begin praying 
And if you're here this morning and you're ready to put the devil out, he's tormented you long enough. Maybe you're like that Gadarean man. You've been out there in the graveyards howling and, and screaming and acting the fool for the devil. But Jesus is stepping on scene. The Bible says when he cleansed him, that man went on to become an evangelist in the city. He done brought the city to Jesus. They done testified so good about Jesus that they made Jesus leave. It don't matter how far you've gone, don't matter how bad you were. God is able to use you if you'll let him this morning. Are you ready to put the devil to flight? The Bible said if one can put a thousand to flight, two can make just something big time happen. The Bible says when the enemy comes in, he comes in and he finds one person, he can knock them down, there's nobody there to pick him up. But when two walk together, there's somebody there to get them. He said two is stronger than one, but a threefold cord is not easily broken. When we come together this morning and we believe together, we're about to build something Satan can't handle. And it's not in our might and it's not in our power, but it's by the Spirit of the Lord. So as I begin praying, if you need prayer this morning or if you are ready to put the devil to flight, I know we have prayer for a special lady this morning that requested it for us, and we're going to do that here in a moment. But if you're here this morning, these altars are going to be open for you. So as I pray, these altars are open. If you need to come down and pray, I'll be glad to pray with you. If you want to pray on these altars, you come pray on these altars. But let's let God just minister for just the next couple of minutes. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I pray today, God, that you would give strength to every man, woman, boy, and girl under the sound of my voice, that they would put to flight any vain imagination, any thought of wickedness, anything that would try to prevent them from knowing who they are in the Lord God, anything that would try to keep them from moving into the next dimension, the next moment of glory. God, the next possessed land, Lord, that you have for them, Father. Lord, the generations ahead that are going to be resorted in and, 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 and lifted up because, God, we refuse to let the devil have a foothold in our homes, God, and a foothold in our churches, God. I believe in the name of Jesus that chains are being broken, that lives are being restored, that we're laying aside every weight of sin that was so easily beset us, God. And we're giving you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. As they worship, just keep worshiping God where you're at. Hallelujah. God.